I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 78. Today in the show, we're joined by certified wildlife biologist Matt Ross, and we're discussing the science of the whitetail rut. Alright, welcome to the Wire to Hunt podcast, brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today we are diving straight into the heart of the topic that I know is on the top of all of your minds, and mine, and Dan's, the whitetail rut. And our guest today is a wildlife biologist and Quality Deer Management Association staff member, Matt Ross. And we brought Matt on the show today to help us dive into the science of the whitetail rut. And you know... We hear a lot about different theories and ideas about the rut, and a lot of that is just kind of one-off stuff thought up by a random hunter or quote-unquote expert, but there actually is some real data and research that's been done across the country related to whitetails and their behavior at this time of year. And Matt is an expert on this stuff, as he studied many of the reports and research projects that have been done related to deer and the rut. So today he's going to share with us everything he's learned on that front, but Before we do give Matt a call, as we like to do every week, staying right on task and on topic, (laughs) we're going to give you a lowdown on what's happening with me and our co-host, Dan Johnson. So, Dan, I hear you've been seeing some bucks. (laughs) Well, let me talk about what I had for lunch first. Yeah, let's get to that. (laughs) No. Dude, uh, wait, 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 wait. Speaking of food. Okay. Speaking of food, can I just say, I've... I posted yeah, a picture. I <laughs> Your diet shit, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> I posted a picture of the junk food that I bought for my all-day sits during the rut. And I, I, I get, you know, easy-to-eat packaged stuff that'll get me through snacking throughout a whole day. So I got some Mountain Dew. I've got some Cheez-Its. I've got some Oreos. I've got apples, and I've got peanut butter and jelly for you, crunchy peanut butter. Um, so I posted a picture of all my snacks and then 
people just came out of the woodwork slaying me, saying how unhealthy I am and how I can do better and how they don't want me to die because they want to keep listening to the podcast and where's my diabetics testing kit and all sorts of stuff. I got lambasted, Dan. I tell you, it's almost like you went on archery talk and asked asked for uh, product information. Oh, I know. That's what happens when I whenever <laughs> I go anywhere. It's like, oh man, that sucks. You're stupid. <laughs> it's like Mark Kenyon. Maybe they're just worried for your well being. I mean, I appreciate that if that's the case. <laughs> but that's the last time I post any pictures related to the food I eat. <laughs> no way, no way. You got to keep doing it every year. Every just, year. No, I want you to take a picture of every every meal you eat, like when you're <laughs> stuffing a Twinkie slowly in your mouth. Uh, I might do that. Be careful what you ask for. That would be awesome if there was, if you had food in that picture that was not like carrier friendly, like you had a tenderloin or like you had <laughs> mashed potatoes and gravy. That would be amazing if you could bring a little Ziploc bag of mashed potatoes and venison to eat in the stand. That would be a heck of an all-day set right there. Just imagine the scent profile that that would create in the woods. <laughs> just like, what the hell? Is there a KFC in the woods? Because I'm heading there. <laughs> <laughs> but back to uh, what you were going to talk about before I took us on a tangent. Yeah. What's going on? Oh, man. Well, I'm I'm just going to tell you a little bit about my weekend. Uh, long story short. Let's see. I got into um, a stand where, like, this year, some a little bit of my focus is annual patterns, right? Based off you know trail cameras, for, you know trail camera information and um, information that I've received from sitting in the stand and, and trying to put myself in those positions this year. Um, because I'll be honest, I'm behind on my trail cameras. I only have one, maybe two out right now, and. I've just I've been extra busy with the family. Um, my wife's business is picking up, and that means that I have to do more tasks around the house so she can work. And I've just I haven't had to, I have not hunted as much as I wanted to. So and I've been thinking I, about this. Yeah, I think we got to talk to Sarah. She needs right. to quit this side job because it's interfering with your hunting time, Dan. Right. Let me <laughs> let me make sure I'm wearing a mouth guard when you tell her that. Yeah. <laughs> she'll she'll or she'll low blow you. She will she will kick she would kick your ass. I don't not, doubt it. I, I should kick it. my ass. Uh, she seems like the type that I don't want to mess with. <laughs> she's a, she's a fireball. I love her to death. I, she won't listen to this, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but so sorry. Continue. Yeah. So anyway, um, so that's. As far as annual patterns are concerned, that's what I've been trying trying to do. So I went to a location off a of marsh where last year I was getting daylight pictures at the beginning of a cold front. So it just so so happened to coincide as with last year's kind of weather as well. And I hunted um, I hunted a, a stand near a marsh on uh, I see Friday night, and I had a couple of young deer come through right off the bat and. Uh, just kind of mill around and they didn't do much. I saw a couple does in the distance, but no mature deer. Um, so then Saturday morning, I was going into one of my best stands. I had the right wind for it. Everything was perfect. And uh, on my way in, I walked by with my headlamp on. I could see the glow in their eyes like 50 yards away from me, probably about seven or eight does just kind of working their way back towards this pattern. So my access route in there, I, 
I decided to go straight line in and I should have taken a different route, but, um, cause typically I never run into deer on here. So it just so happened that I, we crossed paths at the same time. They didn't spook. They didn't blow. I made it to my stand. And, uh, later that morning I had an encounter with a, a really good three-year-old. Um, I don't know. You, did you happen to watch the footage I posted online? I did. Yeah. What would you, he's probably 140 ish maybe low 140s if if 140 at all we're talking about the one that comes right underneath your stand right 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 yeah i, I would say that i was thinking a little less yeah probably but, maybe 135 ish maybe i don't know yeah but you know what what stuck out to me is and i'm i don't claim to be an expert on it but man his neck was huge yeah, yeah. he was he had a huge neck and i'll tell you what i'll be honest with you i had thoughts of shooting that deer for, you know, it, it, he was a big, he had a big neck, but past his shoulders, said three-year-old all the way. I mean, he had a skinnier body, and uh, he just wasn't the mature deer that I'm looking for. Um, I was just like, man, I should shoot him, and I should, uh, uh, I should shoot him, and I should try to, you know, just end my season right now. And but my inner I guess uh, management started talking and was like, nope, got to let him go, bud. So I let him walk. I tore everything down out of that stand, left the stand up because I didn't know what, where I was going to hunt that night. And I, I had a couple options in mind. And so I, I saw that, that deer and I'm just like, you know what? I saw plenty of deer. I'm just going to go back to the same stand. So I went back to the same stand Saturday night and uh, you know, it, it was cloudy and sprinkly and it didn't, I mean, it was sprinkling and misting and it just, and then it started clearing up as the evening went on, the wind started blowing and then it started settling down and I started seeing some does. I'm not a huge fan of, uh, sitting on field edges as I've, as you know, and, um, these deer were coming from a different place than I've ever hunted before out, out onto this field. There's a couple does that started feeding and then, um, Later on, I saw a young buck, maybe one twenty-two year old, come out and uh, start pushing some of these does around, and then out steps. I mean, you you can just tell a darker coat, a way bigger body than the other buck that was out there, and he was a big ten pointer. Um, he was about one hundred and fifty yards. I was able to uh, um, look at him just a bit through my binoculars, and uh, he wasn't chasing does but he was bumping them so he was going up to them smelling them he would know that they're not ready yet right and then they would run up then they'd kind of run and he wouldn't follow them so he did that to like two or three of the does and then he just walked across the field and then as the as the young buck was chasing him he put his ears back and he started making aggression aggressive moves towards this buck this younger buck so i thought to myself Hey, I'm going to rattle. I'm going to see if I can get him in. And I rattled and he just kept working his way down the, down the field. And, uh, then I, I just lost him and time ran out and, um, I didn't hunt Sunday morning because the wind, uh, the wind was not right for any of the stands that I had set. And I didn't want to go in and set up a new stand, uh, for, uh, um, in a place where I thought there might be uh, potential shooters, uh, it's just, it's, it's a little risky making all that noise and leaving all that scent. Gotcha. Well, Hey, it sounds like you had some fun sits. You saw some pretty nice yeah. bucks. 
yeah so i got a i got an idea of where where some of them are coming in where they're co- going out not a lot of sign yet i have i didn't see a, a lot of sign um but i did kind of a side story i seen a guy out working his cattle so i stopped and i talked to him he's a neighboring landowner and it's always kind of good to see know for a fact what happens to deer it's like oh man what happened to this deer i've seen him two years in a row now he's gone well i had the buck that i passed or well i would have shot him if he was just a little bit closer or offered a more of a broadside shot last year like the er, the first two weeks of october i think big nine pointer yeah big nine pointer he ended up shooting that deer during shotgun season Ah. so it's kind of cool to know that hey this buck has make it now here's the cool thing this guy tells me he goes this was the biggest buck i have ever seen really so i shot it yeah so that just tells me that these people that are out these landowners these people that are out hunting they don't really pay attention like bo- us bow hunters do i'm not saying you know i'm not trying to categorize shotgun hunters and bow hunters but there's a you know some of these people they just don't focus like us hardcore guys do and you know i i got like six deer that are bigger than this nine pointer out there oh, yeah. and they you know they they go in they do their thing and when they're done they're done you know no big deal if that's the way you hunt that's the way you hunt so yeah it's but it's kind of cool knowing that Hey, this is why this is this is a one of the re- another reason why there's big deer in the area. Yeah, and I think it also speaks to the fact that if you pay attention to the details like we try to do, mm-hmm. it gives us the opportunities to see some of these deer that a lot of people don't. That's right. So, it pays off. How about you? Um, relatively uneventful weekend, um sort of. I was originally, I think uh, I think last time we talked, I might have been talking about the fact that I was originally planning on going to Ohio last weekend. Yep. Um but the weather forecast just did not look good. It was going to be really warm, like 70s, even almost 80 degrees on Saturday. Um, so I kind of looked at, okay, this looks like it's going to be kind of a subpar weekend down there. Do I go down there when I'm not really having high hopes of any real potential? Or should I nix the hunt and instead put in some time with the family? And that's what I ended up deciding to do. Yeah. So I did not go to Ohio, and instead I just uh, you know spent some time with the wife, spent some time with the in-laws, spent some time with my mom and dad. Um, and just trying to get things in line before my big rut trip. But I did get out for two evenings back home here in Michigan. I hunted Thursday night, saw a bunch of does, but nothing of of too much interest and couldn't get a shot at one of them. And then Sunday night, I wasn't planning on hunting, but I got home back from my family event earlier than I thought I would, and I had like an hour and a half of daylight left, and it just felt good outside and I was like I want to be in a tree right now so I just scurried ran out to one of my closest tree stands um, that I can get to close from my house and got in that tree with like an hour and 15 minutes of daylight left and I ended up shooting a nice doe that night nice and right after I shot this doe out of this little pocket of bedding cover comes the top buck on my Michigan property oh Um, now since I had killed a buck on this farm earlier this year I wasn't going to shoot any other deer unless like some random deer from out of nowhere showed up that was just a mega giant but if one of the deer that I knew was living in the area showed up I decided that I wasn't going to shoot him so this was one of those nice deer and he's a three-year-old um, but a really nice Michigan three-year-old um, in my opinion for for Michigan I, he was cool so it was really fun yeah. to see him come into the food plot and he just fed for like 10-15 minutes and I just watched and light faded and it got too dark and then he walks right underneath my tree stand um which is fun just uh you know yeah but it was it was fun because you know 
in so many situations, one a buck that you would usually shoot when you see him, you're in shoot mode, you're in hunt mode, and you're you know all fired up and focusing on just trying to get the shot. But you know, in this case, it was fun just to not worry about that and to just you know, it's fun to sometimes pass on deer and just get to enjoy the moment, um, right. which is what I did there. But as soon as he came underneath my stand, he saw these does, and then he started chasing these does all around, um, which you know is a little bit earlier than most of the time that I see in Michigan that these three-year-olds, again, I think these three-year-olds in Michigan act more like four or five-year-olds in some of those lower pressure states just because yeah. of the intense pressure here. So lots of times I'm not seeing a buck of that age getting after it till you know, another week from now. But uh, but he was getting a little frisky, so that was nice to see. It was fun and saw lots of young bucks chasing around like crazy. There was just deer running all over that night. So it was a fun hunt and uh, got a doe on the ground in the freezer. So... I'm primed. I'm feeling good. I had a nice clean kill on her. She was dead in like 10 seconds. She ran off 30 yards and flipped over and that was it. So it feels good to, you know, have that, uh, in the back pocket heading into the rut. So the the cool thing about this is, is what I really like out of this story that you said is the fact that you, you, you took a buck and then you said to yourself, you know, I don't need to take another buck off this property, even though it was your your top hit lister off the property. Now what you've done is you've made a conscious effort to put, you know, basically actions behind your words as far as management is concerned. And, you know, for anybody who's listening, that that's a great that's a that's a great thing to help not only you and your property, but the entire state of Michigan to improve their deer their deer quality. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And I think, you know, more and more people every year are starting to practice some form of of deer management. And, um, you know, it's helping. And, you know, I know there's a good chance that these bucks could get killed during gun season. But, you know, if I shot him, there's no chance he'd make it through. So, um, so yeah, I'm really hopeful that this buck and then the eight-pointer that I missed on opening night. um, And then there's one other eight-pointer who has been off and on in the area. If a couple of those guys make it through, they'll be just they'll be awesome. Michigan near next year, just toad, probably big eight pointers, four year olds, and uh, that would be awesome if I had a couple of nice four year olds to chase next year in Michigan. So that's my hope. My fingers are crossed. I'm hoping they're gonna make it, and I'd love to, you know, continue to get to know these deer, learn about them this year, watch them, and get pictures of them, so that next year I'll have a good idea of what I need to do to uh, get an arrow in one. So, and just kind of a. A heads up to those who are listening as far as if you know if you pay attention to the moon at all this week going into this weekend um, we have a setting moon and a rising sun so I'm not sure what day it is this week if it's this later this week or this weekend we're gonna have the moon setting you know like 10 degrees in the air and the sun rising at the same time and according to some of these guys who believe in that moon phase that's an optimal an optimal time yeah, great point, Dan. And also another thing, um, and we'll talk to Matt here in a second, and he'll share some research that they've shown about the moon. Um, but there is a lot of anecdotal evidence that supports some of these theories. And Adam Hayes, one of our past podcast guests, you remember probably talked yep. about the moon guide he uses and paying attention to the overhead underfoot times. Yep. Well, the moon will be overhead during the last couple hours of daylight on this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Perfect. Should be should be really good days in the evening. So um, I'm going to be out in Ohio on Thursday and Friday, hoping to take advantage of that. And there's a little bit of cool weather Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then Saturday morning, I'm going to drive to Iowa in your home state and hunt there for the next week. So exciting stuff to come. I can't wait to help you drag a deer out, man. Like, oh, I hope so. I uh, um, 
Like I, I know for a, like Friday is Friday night. I got a south southeast wind, right? And I'm going into Mark Kenyon territory. Oh baby! So off this ridge that he's he's been known to bed. Trail camera pictures of him throughout the entire season. So I'm uh, I'm foaming at the mouth and trying to you know. I'm getting out of work early, going to get into the stand early and get my wind blowing off into this ridge. And hopefully uh, he comes through or some deer comes through and bingo, bango, right? Bingo, bango. But hey, man, we are, as we tend to get doing lately, yeah. <laughs> running late. Let's get late. the pros on. We need to get the pro on the line here. We need to give Matt a call. So let's go ahead and do that right now. But. As you might have expected, we do need to pause briefly for a word from our partners at Sitka Gear, who are making this podcast possible. So, as we've been doing over the past couple months, we've got Sitka product category leader Dennis Zuck with us. I wanted Dennis to share with us what his ideal layering system from Sitka would be for a typical November rut hunt. Here's Dennis. Yeah, Mark, I think a lot of that had to do with your, uh, your, and, and I'm in the same boat, you know, I'm, I'm going to be here all day, you know, so if I'm going out, I'm going to spend all day. Um, it's going to be pretty cold. I'm not going to be cre- I'm not moving at all. I'm sedentary. You know, I, I got to maintain and hold every bit of warmth I might have, you know, so I'm going to make sure that, you know, this is where I might pull my Merino out or get a Merino base layer, you know, something that's going to be warmth to weight, really warm. I'm also probably bow hunting. So I, that range of motion still matters a lot to me. So I'm going to want to make sure I have an insulation layer. So I have something that, that I can bulk up if things get cold. I want to make sure I have a, a good base layer that's going to still keep me warm right up against my skin. Um, I'm going to make sure that I have some kind of rain protection in my bag, you know, so I have, you know, whether it's a pack up piece or something that I can pull out if it gets, if it gets nasty, I don't want to have to walk out, you know, so I'm thinking about all those things. Um, if I'm thinking about that for Sitka, I'm thinking about that with, uh, probably our Merino base layers. And I'm thinking about that with our fanatic system. Um, our fanatic hoodie is one that's important to me because there's a lot of that day that I may not wear my jacket. You know, it's warmer. I can wear that hoodie and, and I feel really good. And I'll probably put a downpour system in my backpack. So those are the things that for me I, I like to have. I think that's what I would wear during the run. It's, you know, be more honest, is what I do wear during the hunt. So there you have it. If you're interested in picking up some last-minute gear before the rut or checking out any other items from Sitka, visit SitkaGear.com. And now let's get Matt on the line. All right, with us now on the line is Matt Ross. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I uh, you know I get to talk to you a lot with some of the work that we do, but I'm excited to actually have you on the show here to speak with a lot of our listeners because you're a guy that I know has a lot of insight and education when it comes to wildlife and deer and what they do. And you know, me and Dan know a little bit about your background, and I shared just a little bit at the top of the show. But for our listeners who aren't familiar with you or what you do, could you give us a little bit of background into your education and background about what you do related to whitetails? now and how, we're, how you got to that point? Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd be happy to. So uh, I currently work at the Quality Deer Management Association. You probably said that, but um, I'm from the Northeast. I live in New York State. Um, you know, first and foremost, I'm a deer hunter. Uh, I grew up, you know, in a family of deer hunters, and it's what drove me to a career of looking at deer and wanting to do stuff with deer. Um, and I vividly remember growing up, you know, wanting to do something along those lines. And, well, uh, when I was in high school, found out there was a career that you could do this. And then it was, you know, just drove me right towards it right away. So I uh, went to school for uh, and got a 
a degree as a bachelor's for wildlife and actually worked for our local Department of Environmental Conservation. That's kind of our DNR in New York State uh, for a few years as a technician and then went back to school and got my master's. And, uh, you know, and that had to do with deer. My, my master's project actually had to do with deer in northern New England up in uh, New Hampshire. And uh, I get to work one-on-one -on -one with deer that were in a research facility, which is an amazing experience. And uh, when I finished school, uh, actually it was in the middle of writing my thesis, I, I got a job working for a consulting company throughout the Northeast. Uh, mostly they were a forestry-based consultant company. I was hired as the, as the wildlife uh, person on staff. And I got to work with landowners and townships and uh, some other private entities writing deer management plans, sometimes about deer, but not always, and uh, really enjoyed that experience. And that company actually did a lot of forest management. So while I was there, I started picking up some of the forest management stuff. I had actually had a minor in that and uh, enjoyed that so much. I ended up uh, following that side of the profession as well and became licensed as a forester and by the time I was done uh, working at that firm, you know, I was marking timber and working with logging contractors and prescribing forest management as well as wildlife. And it was a really, really valuable part of uh, my professional experience. And as a deer hunter, too, seeing that marriage between managing habitat and, uh, you know, what you can do with deer. And along the time, it was like 99, 2000, that's when I learned about QDMA. And I actually was introduced to QDMA um, from a colleague who uh, I think you've had on the show before, uh, Kip Adams. And I learned about it, and I joined, and I became a member initially and actually started a local, what we call branches, uh, our chapters, little grassroots movements, and uh, did that with friends and started up doing that as a volunteer and eventually a, a job opened up and I applied and now it's almost 10 years later I've been working for QDMA and I've done a variety of different things at QDMA but today I, I run our private lands program that's what I call it, it I'm, my title is a little bit different than that but I run our deer steward courses and uh, which are individual classes people can take uh, and our land certification program. So if you own land or you're leasing land and you want to get that property certified or assessed by a QDMA inspector, uh, I run both of those, among many other things uh, uh, at the organization as well. So in short, you do a lot of stuff related to deer every day. Yeah, every day. <laughs> it's a good job. It's a good job. Yeah, it is a good job. So what we're hoping to garner from you today, Matt, given your background, given the fact that you've been deep into this stuff for, you know, 15 years or more, it sounds like well over that actually, you know, we, we talk a lot on this podcast about strategies and tactics and we have a lot of different people come on here and share their ideas and their theories and what they've seen. And a lot of that is anecdotal though. And I do know though, there's been a lot of research done. There's a lot of science related to deer because deer are, you know, the most popular abundant game species out there. And so because of that, obviously there's a lot of attention paid to them. Um, but we don't often actually get to dive into that science. So I thought with you here, we could really dig deep into that. The actual research science data behind some of these theories or ideas that we have. And I don't think I know many people that understand this stuff better than you do. So that's kind of the the plan and theme for where we're going here. High high pressure on you, Matt, because we're really depending on you to educate us. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that, no worries. And and 
you know, always remember, too, I already said it once, you know, I, I am a deer hunter, and there's a lot of things out there in the research, you know, when you get into, like, peer-reviewed research, and we can talk about all the nuances of that, too, you know, it's looking at something that's site-specific, and um, you can also take some second guesses there. But being a deer hunter, there's some results in, in some of the research out there that myself and other colleagues and stuff, it just seems like head-scratchers, like, that just doesn't seem like it's the case, but... Um, you know, from what I've seen in my own anecdotes, but the research says that you kind of, it, it's not always a gospel. You can't always just say, you know, the research says this, so it must be true. Um, it gives you clues and, uh, you kind of piece it all together. So yeah, I, I'm happy to share what I've learned. And, uh, I actually had the, ad, uh, advantage a couple of years ago for a convention. Um, I was assigned the task of presenting all this material as one of our presentations at our national convention about, specifically mature bucks, uh, looking at uh, mature bucks and what they, how they moved, how their home ranges looked, um, and looking at GPS research. Because over the last probably decade or so, a lot of the movement research on deer, and again, specifically talking about bucks, has evolved because the collars that they're using today are just, um, just phenomenal compared to the technology 15 years ago or 20 years ago, where there was research with radio collars that they were, you know, triangulating and using transmitters to try to locate a deer based on getting a couple different lines of sight of where that, that buck might be. But now, I mean, you guys all know, I mean, the technology in a smartphone today is just amazing. The same technology exists in GPS units where these deer are getting located by the minute, sometimes in the middle of the rut, and they really know where they are. So uh, that has fine-tuned a lot of it. And Looking at that research, the more recent research on bucks and compiling that for that presentation really allowed me to also to just frame it in my own mind what, what's happening. And uh, there's been a lot of positive feedback at the organization in the magazine and um, on our website, you know, com. People love talking about that stuff, so I'm happy to share what I've learned. Yeah, I'm excited to get into that because um, those are some of the studies that I've taken a look at too that are pretty fascinating. Um, but but real quickly before we dive into that aspect of it, I want to kind of set the stage with two pieces that I think kind of get us properly framed for the rest of the conversation. And number one, you know, take us from a deer's life at the end of the summer and how they are changing physiologically as you progress from the end of the summer up to this point. Because a lot of things change in a deer's actual you know, biology and, and body that, that affect then some of these behavioral things that we're going to talk about. Can you just walk us through how a buck is changing and where they're at right now? Um, and then I want to talk about what actually triggers the start of the rut. But let's start, start with the physiological aspects of what's happening. Okay, so with bucks particular, and let's just talk about bucks. If you want to talk about all deer or, or you know, talk about specific segments of the of a herd, we can jump into that. But um, specifically about bucks, a lot of the research, what, it, what it's saying in terms of both the resource use, um, where they exist on the landscape, you know, what they're using, what they're eating, that's changing, and their physiological uh, their body is changing too because they're preparing not for the rigors of the rut, but to make it through the winter. I mean, that's deer have evolved a long time to be able to live off of times of surplus when there's abundance, such as green food out there. It's not always, you know, row crops in every part of the country. That certainly exists in, in a lot of the country, but if you go back eons ago, 
you know, when, when deer were around before there was large-scale commercial agriculture, they lived off of what was abundant and what was green. And then in times of scarcity, when you're going into the fall, as a lot of that vegetation that's in, in abundance and high water content and high nutrient content is starting to what we call finesse, you know, it's all dying back. You're losing some of that vegetation. And then, again, into winter, even in more temperate climates where uh, they might not have deep snow or bad winters, there's still a, a time of scarcity when those food sources are, are uh, disappearing. And in some of the true sense of the, the word of living off their body and living off fat, you know, deer are getting ready for that. So they're bulking up and they need to change what they're eating and change where they're on their landscape. So in its simplicity, you know, in its simplicity, what deer are doing is g going from a time when they're eating a lot of broad leaved, non-woody vegetation, forbs, um, things like, you know, in-row crop ag or herbaceous naturally occurring vegetation that you might find in fields or on the wood edges or even in wood, wooded settings to uh, a time where they're trying to change to a high-carb, high-fat diet where they're trying to put on weight. So that food change is also, is also driving where they're going to be. Um, so when a deer is existing in its in its own home range, that's what we call it, where a deer is about 90, 95% of the of the year, um, where they will be found within their home range is definitely there's a lot of variation to it, and they're changing at this time of year specifically. One of the biggest changes, the next time it'll change again, is probably when they're going into in the areas that have really bad winters and severe snowstorms and things like that. They'll change again, but you might see deer all summer going into September, um, even into early October, and now is where they're they're shifting where they live and they're shifting what they eat. And that is the primary reason why people start seeing differences in uh, activity and visibility and observations of bucks um, because they're just changing and they're getting ready for it. Um, certainly with the rut coming up, they're, they're going to be uh, using more of that, that space uh, more, more of their home range, uh, and that will cause, and they also reduce their intake. That was actually some of the research I got to be part of in New Hampshire. Uh, was really, really interesting. Um, a lot of people don't realize, I mean, there's kind of theories out there, or I guess myths, that deer reduce their metabolism in, in winter. That's not the case. They don't change their metabolic rate at all. It's not something they have the choice of doing. Their, meta their metabolic rate doesn't change, but what deer do is just reduce activity going out of the rut in the winter, and they live off their uh, their body fat. You know, all those carbs that they're trying to take in, uh, they're bulking up, and they can lose up to 30% of their body weight over the winter when they're in that time of scarcity. And the really interesting thing, when I was at this research facility in grad school, we had deer that were raised from, you know, they were bottle-fed, um, you could almost liken them to cattle, but they were they were a lot more wild than that. But they were fed uh, pelleted grain or just basically bag feed, and uh, we monitored every, you know what we bought and what we put out there for them. And this is the case throughout the country. But they would just voluntarily stop eating in the winter, even though they had free choice to it. You know, it was they were in a time of deep cold temperatures, you're talking about northern New England, you know, deep snows, and they had food there, and you would think these deer would walk 
you know, a short distance within their pens to eat this food and they'd be fine. Now they, you know, their ancestors had, had, uh, I guess, given them the gift of bulking up and their, and their intake would go up throughout the fall and then it would stop and they would stop eating. I mean, that's just what they do. They've evolved (laughs) to do that. So as the year is changing, going from, you know, again, July, August, when we're seeing deer doing what we see them do, and they're very, very visible to right now, you know, getting into late October. And of course, you know, many people are, your listeners are deer hunters. They're changing again in November, December for most of the country. That's their breeding season. And they're going to change again. So um, they're very adaptable and it's based on the evolution of the animal surviving and, and needing to use those resources. So that that's, in essence, the core of why deer behavior and activity changes is they're, they're changing to survive. I have a real quick question uh, regarding survival based off of, you know, like body weight loss from the winter. Um, from my experience, I've also seen bucks lose a lot of weight during the rut because, you know, they're just running all over the place. Does that happen to affect a mortality rate higher in bucks from winter kill because they're going into a winter? Let's say if it's hard, if it's a hard winter, lots of snow, um, not a lot of food. Have you have you had any research that like that? Most and that's a great question, Dan. Most of the research suggests, and this is the case in a lot of those extreme environments. You know, the the loss of the deer herd, the animals that are going to die first, are the young and the oldest. Um, and certainly bucks are part of that, even if they're not of older age. Um, if you have an advanced age structure in your area, that they would be ones they would lose. But bucks are, are just like, you know, they uh, with young men driving, you know, cars, our insurance rates tend to be higher than with women. You know, bucks <laughs> throw a lot more risk out there. Um, so you do tend to see a higher mortality from bucks. So a couple of the, specifically when you're talking about research, a couple of the things that you might see there is, in a situation where you have a, a deer herd that there is um, a lot of imbalance to it, you know, but heavy winters, you might see mortality in a little bit younger ages with bucks than in other situations because those younger bucks uh, are are busy trying to breed, so they they might be going into the winter with a little bit more weight loss. Um, but when you have a good well-balanced deer herd that doesn't necessarily exist so yeah that can happen i mean you can see some of your older bucks um in situations where they're just so rut drawn down and the winter might hit early and it could be a really long bad winter uh you might lose some of them the key there though is not necessarily how early the winter is or even really how how late your winter exists um, you can almost set a clock by it where this is something called a winter severity index. I'm sure Mark's familiar with that being from Michigan, but yeah. um, you, there's basically a 90 day clock of having winter that deer have that fat reserve. Their, their, their body can take loss. Uh, and that's really those late March, early April for most of the North. Um, and, he, and that would be included where you are, Dan. That 90-day clock is ticking. Once it starts, it hasn't set right yet in most of the country. I'm sure there's parts of extreme north and up into Canada that might be it. But for the most part, that clock isn't ticking yet. Um, but that 90-day clock starts ticking, and, and 
once and it's a combination of cold temperatures you don't necessarily have to have deep snow but either deep temperature or very low temperatures or really deep snows or a combination of, of the two um, at that 90 day limit is when you start seeing loss but for the most part you're not going to lose deer if you're if you could have a couple of really uh site specific bad storms in the middle of january february deer can make it through that they, they uh, they're built to do it um it's those late storms that really uh really can take out some of those individuals so um with bucks in particular i mean you want to see good rutting behavior right you want to see bucks chasing you want to see um, them running all over the place so if you have a good balanced age structure you should enjoy that aspect of it not worry about losing that buck to winter the key there is uh, if you have a long winter that's longer than 90 days uh, do they have the resources on your property have you managed it so that they at least can get access to something that'll keep them through that last week or two or three to the point where melt snow starts disappearing or temperatures start increasing Interesting. So, so we, we talked a little about food's impact earlier in the years are starting to ramp up. And now we've talked about the, the impact of the, the clock, the winter clock in the late season, and then getting that food eventually in the spring. But the other aspect of changing deer physiology and this, when we're talking, you know, September, October, coming into this time period right now, the, the, the second piece of whitetail biology that's changing, as we all know, is the aspect related to breeding and rising testosterone levels in bucks and, and everything like that. And the topic of the rut and when it is actually going to happen is probably like the most contentious, debated, desired to know topic out there when it comes to deer. I mean, this thing is just Googled to all get out, all fall. Yeah. Um, and there's lots of strong opinions on it. I know where you stand on this, Matt, but I would love to hear from you an explanation of what, impacts or influences the timing of the rut what are those what's the factors what's the science behind it so everyone can understand what's happening here okay so when it comes down to a lot of things in the deer's physiology and i, I imagine that's what you were hinting at even earlier um, a lot of it is driven by photo period and i'm sure most people have heard that but i'll explain it that's the amount of daylight in a 24-hour period so right now you know actually i think it's next weekend our clocks can uh get changed for the fall uh, fall period, we all know that, you know, it's getting lighter later in the morning and it's getting darker earlier in the evening, and that's just the amount of daylight we have. Um, a lot of things in the, in the world of deer is, is dependent on that change of photo period, and that's where you kind of get into some of this other stuff with moon and, and other things. I can tell you what we know through research. Um, you know, the cycle of antler growth is dependent on photo period to the point where I mean, a lot of folks probably haven't heard this before, but it, back in the day, they were able to do a little bit different stuff with, uh, you know, animal care and stuff with research. Um, there has been research that was has tested photo period with deer to, to make bucks grow more than one set out of antlers in one year just by altering the photo period of what that deer was seeing. So we all know that, you know, they grow velvet antlers, they shed that velvet, the antlers harden. Um, they hold those hard antlers for a period of time, and then um, they drop them, and they grow a new set next year. Um, in research, they actually have done this in a couple instances where they had uh, photo-controlled rooms where the deer were in and were able to alter the amount of light to mimic a, basically two days in a 24-hour period and, and make uh, a deer grow multiple sets of antlers in a year. 
uh, maybe not quite exactly like that, but that that is the case. They can do some of those things. Wow. Um, yeah, so photo period drives antler growth. Uh, we know photo period also drives the the rot or the breeding season. When you're talking about the rot, the act of you know the pop at a population level, most deer uh, successfully breeding and raising young, you know, becoming pregnant and and raising another. Uh, off group of offspring, another cohort. Um, how do we know that? So it's a, it's kind of a domino effect of chemicals in the deer's body, but as the photo period changes and there's less daylight, um, that domino effect, the end result is uh, testosterone increases in the buck. Actually, their testes increase in size and uh, so does their neck. Their neck swells from testosterone, just like a bodybuilder giving him self shots of testosterone. He's he's growing in muscle. That that is what's happening. And that domino effect is is this chain reaction of um, the amount of daylight going in a deer's eyeball, a buck's eyeball. It triggers the release of you know the pituitary gland. There's a there's a direct line between the the eyeball and the pineal gland, which is in the brain, and that releases uh, like a uh, type of hormone which releases, uh, it's, it's down the line, but basically what it does is it, it tells the testes to get bigger and to start producing more testosterone, and it gets the bucks primed. And uh, the same thing with, with does, uh, photoperiod is driving her, ability to come into estrus or come into heat and they've done experiments again in the instance where they can you know alter some of that and make a make a buck rot more than once a year or those types of things so um in controlled experience they know photo period is at the heart of all of that um you know then you get into the nuances of well is the moon offering more light during times of the year and it's going to you know, cue when a deer uh, breeds and things like that. And there's there's a lot of ambiguity there. You know, it's it's a little bit confusing because what we see as hunters isn't necessarily the truth of when when copulations or breeding is occurring. But um, for 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 the most part, none of that is impacted more than anything than daylight. And if you think about it from the perspective of most of the country. Uh, especially, you know, northern northern U.S. and going up into Canada, you're talking about a large, large section of North America where deer are, uh, it wouldn't make sense to have the moon really change when the breeding is occurring by a lot. Um, and it can be, you know, moon phase can, can be a little bit different um, every year, but it can be several weeks off, and you could be talking about, you know, from year to year, and you could be talking about, the pregnancy of a deer is 200 days. So when you're changing when deer are breeding, you're changing when the bulk of the fawns are being born, and it just doesn't, it's an environmental advantage for them to have, to give birth early enough in the summer those, so those fawns can get uh, on the ground and start eating real vegetation and grow big enough so that they can make it the following winter. Um, if they're born too late, they might not make it their first winter if they're born too early they might not even make it to see a couple months old because it could you could have one of those late storms um just like with turkey broods you know you might have something that happens and uh you lose it and for deer they are going to breed once a year it's not uh it's not going to happen multiple times so they have that one shot 
So photo period is the core of, of everything. How, how long does a doe ovulate? How long does she ovulate? They're much like any other mammal, just like a human. They will come into estrus every 28 days. Um, so in the wild, uh, you know, a deer can go, if she's not bred, a couple times, two, three times. I think uh, the most ever recorded in captivity was five or six or seven times. Now you're talking about five or six or seven months. And some of that was probably altered with uh, what the research we're doing. But you would see, you know, for a early breeding deer, October, late October, like right now, I'm sure there are some cases, it's a small small portion considering the bulk of deer out there. But, you know, there are there's deer breeding right now across the country, it's late October. Uh, ones that come into heat and miss it, you're talking about late November. They miss it again, you're talking about late December. That's probably going to be it for the bulk. There might be a couple other ones that might do it a fourth time, but I mean, that's two or three times in the wild is about what you'll see. So, so then Matt, if what I, you know, from what I understand, given this, this science that, that proves that the photo period is impacting the rut and the photo period is consistent year after year, that for the majority of the country that you're talking about, especially the Northern portion, peak breeding dates then would be quite consistent year after year and then it's a bell curve from there so hypothetically let's say in a lot of states from what i understand peak breeding is usually around that middle of november so let's just say november 15th maybe is your peak breeding date where the highest proportion of the population is bred and then it declines a little bit on either side of that peak so then there's there's some breeding on the 14th and 16th and a little bit less on the 13th and 17th and a little bit less on the 12th and the 18th etc is that is that accurate that that is what we're seeing when we actually look at the actual breeding dates and then the research that shows, you know, when those actually happen. Yeah, you nailed on the head. I mean, it's all bell-shaped curve. The difference there, and again, this is coming back to me being a deer hunter, it's different than what you're seeing, though. You know, what you're seeing in terms of activity, when deer are actually breeding, um, their behavior is very specific in terms of how a, a whitetail actually breeds. Um, they're not uh, gregarious like elk or other herding animals where, you know, one bull will have multiple cows. Um, Whitetails are driven through a, a phase of breeding where um, they're segregated. You know, their bucks and does are separate in different groups. Um, obviously, you guys have talked about this before, but bucks will form bachelor groups in the summer. And they break up, and those bucks are loners for the rest of the fall, you know, searching out does. And the, the time spent with a uh, doe when he's breeding her is going to be a a day or a couple of days. So he'll spend a couple of days chasing around, uh, looking for locating a doe that's receptive. We'll spend a day or two with her and keep looking. The frenzy of when a lot of that is happening, you know, when you're sitting in your stand and there are, there's three or four bucks chasing one doe um, or multiple bucks just cruising by, that would not be considered the peak of the rut, the breeding phase, because these are deer out looking. That's probably just prior to all of that. So you know, and one of the cool things is observations of hunters can vary from property to property, from county to county, and definitely from state to state. So um, when you get down to it, well, hunters want to know about the rut is how can I kill something, right? When should I be out there? Yes, for the most part, it's consistent year to year. You can pick the first or second, and in some cases, third week in November, and take time off and go out there and hunt, and you're going to see some activity. 
it's a bummer when you're out there and you're not seeing much. And that is impacted by other things. There are other influences um, that can change that. And again, this goes back to the research where, you know, I can tell you, uh, you know, in terms of weather and things, what the research says, you know, my gut tells me some of that stuff is not, you know, there's something that we haven't found out yet. Um, and I'll just tell you, for the most part, there hasn't been any research that says weather. And I'm talking about everything from barometric pressure to rain events to temperature drops to all that stuff. Has We're talking about collared deer, hundreds of collared deer in some cases, in some of these studies, and have not seen a correlation to a weather change. Almost every variable you can think of with weather and see any difference in deer activity. Again, we don't know. We don't have cameras on these deer. We don't know if they're actually breeding, but we can actually monitor activity, how much they're moving in a day um, or a 24-hour period or how long those distances are, and there hasn't been any. My gut tells me there's something weather-related out there, um, but and I still want to plan when I'm hunting based on some of that. Um, but the neat thing is I can go out there and sit out there and see a frenzy of activity. I could have a buddy two counties over that I'm texting that's seeing completely something different, and that's property-specific. It's even the deer herd-specific to that property based on those deer. I mean, maybe the the does on the property I'm on are all synchronized and they're all coming into estrus around the same time or just before, or maybe there's those handful of early uh, breeding events that are happening that are making all bucks go crazy. I mean, it's so site-specific. And one of the cool things that we've done at QDMA um, is partnered with some other uh, organizations, uh, Sitka, Cabela's, and others, uh, with Powderhook, and developed an app to track some of that stuff to create a heat map um, of daytime activity where you can just log in your observations of what you're seeing or the deer you're killing. Um, and they take all that into account and, and create that. It's a really, really neat thing. So when it comes down to the rut, I mean, why do people want to talk about it? They want to talk about it because they want to figure out how they can best be successful to go out there and shoot a deer, specifically a buck. One of the best things that I can offer to you is take this science and use it to the best of your ability. I mean, but at the same time, a lot of it has to be site-specific, and some of the stuff that you guys talk about on your show is you as a hunter, you as a leasee or a landowner – just keeping tabs on that deer herd, either through trail cameras or individual bucks and tracking them throughout the year and getting a sense of when stuff is happening and trying to be ready for when it happens within the window of when the bigger science says, you know what, there's about a two, two and a half week window when I should be out there and then just try to target when you need to be out. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's, you know, right in line with, with what you said is, is, is looking at this, the high level scientific data, but then to your point, understanding the site-specific uniqueness of your property and the situation at hand. And that brings me to something that I that I am equally fascinated by that I know you've looked into, which is actual buck behavior during the rut. And I know there's been a number of GPS studies that have looked into this. Two things specifically that I have found interesting about behavior that these studies have shown are the uh, phenomena of how they relate to focal points and then also this other phenomena of taking these excursions. Could you share with us a little bit about what these studies have found about buck behavior during the rut related to those two things? Yeah, no problem. Uh, Let me talk about the focal points first. Um, Aaron Foley, who's a researcher at Texas A&M, and and a lot of his co-authors looked at this. It was a multiple-year study looking at a a bunch of different things uh, related to to bucks, 
and their use of space. And again, it was out of Texas. And uh, for people that aren't QDMA members, this was actually uh, a feature article in Quality Whitetails. That's our publication that comes out every other month. Um, I think it was the last issue. Um, really, really interesting stuff in terms of how bucks use, um, again, their home range or their core areas over during the rut and how that changes. And for the most part, we've always – and the research does point to bucks being individuals. You know, some are up on their feet a lot and they move a lot, you know, day or night. Some don't move that very much. Some have large home ranges. Some have very small home ranges. And there's combinations of all four of those. Um, and it really varies based on the individual buck. Um, when it comes to, to focal points, what Mark is asking about is this was one of the first studies that actually showed spatial memory, meaning a buck remembering, uh, if you will, uh, where doe groups are and returning to those places uh, on, a, on a fairly consistent basis. Um, what the researchers found there was about every 20 to 28 hours, um, they had uh, both bucks and does collared, uh, and they were able to document uh, multiple bucks visiting what the researchers called focal areas. There would be some somewhere between one to three focal areas within that buck's home range. So if a buck was traveling, you know, 1,000 acres, that's what their home range is. I'm just, that's a, uh, um, just a random number I'm coming up with. They might have a core area throughout most of the year of 5 to 10% of that, and that's basically what the research shows. Um, you know, between 5 to 10% of a buck's home range will be its core area. And it might not be one spot. It might be one or two. Um, during the rut, their home range expands, sometimes excessively, three, four times the size, and they are using more of that space. Um, so the home range, I defined it earlier as the space a buck is 90 to 95% of the time. The core area, as many hunters call them, is like their bedroom. They're there 50% of the time. Half the time you'll find the buck there. During the rut, bucks use less of their core area less often. They're not in that 50% space that, as much, and they're, they're using way more of that 90 95% of their home range. They're out there a lot more than they used to, so they're shifting where they are in their home range. The, the really interesting thing, though, is these researchers found that these bucks are not doing it randomly. They are picking these focal areas. There's you know, a handful of them, usually three or four of them within, the buck, within that buck's home range where he's concentrating on it, spending some time there, leaving it, going to another one, leaving it, going to another one, leaving it, going to another one, and returning to the original one. Every 20 to 28 hours, that buck is returning to one of those spots. And with multiple bucks collared, um, they were able to see this on the landscape where there was, and they also had does uh, collared, that there was spatial memory where bucks were returning to these spots saying, you know, there's a doe group there, and you'd have one or two or three bucks returning to that spot at different periods to, to find them. So that gives a lot of confirmation to, you know, the whole adage, you know, if you hunt where the does are, um, you'll see bucks. Or, or along those lines, um, yeah, that is true. I mean, during the rut, bucks are trying to find these does. They're checking the receptiveness possibly and returning, and that research is ongoing, but that, that is something that's really interesting. The other thing that Mark asked about was 
um, about excursions. And that's something else I've, I've been able to look in depth at. And one of the things that we found with excursions is that they happen year-round. By far, they're more rut-related fall-time excursions than they are spring. But there has been documented cases from Pennsylvania all the way down to Louisiana and everywhere in between from agricultural environments like Iowa and Maryland to heavily forested environments. Um, but bucks are making these excursions. And what they are is within that, that home range where a buck is 90 to 95% of the time, they might spend, take sometimes one, sometimes multiple events where they leave that space they're gone for a very short period of time, usually a day to 36 hours, and they return quickly. Um, there's by far more rut-related excursions that are happening, almost probably a three-to-one, um, and it's generally about half of bucks make them. Um, and of the ones that do go, uh, the majority do it multiple times. It's almost going back to that individuality where, you know, if a buck's got the propensity to do this, he might do that. So it lends a lot of credibility to the hunter that sees a buck show up on his trail camera or you're sitting there and his deer comes cruising through that you've never seen before um, and, you know, you miss your chance at it and you never see that deer again, that could be a buck that was on an excursion. Uh, or likewise, if you've been following a deer and you have great uh, documentation of that buck, even out of the summer, getting into pre-rut or even getting into, you know, in the next couple of weeks, you're seeing this deer on camera and then all of a sudden, poof, that deer's gone. Um, he may have actually made one of those excursions. And the ones that, this isn't confirmed, but the ones that are revelated are assumed, obviously, uh, to be in search of does. There might not be enough receptive does in his home range. He's checked all his focal areas and he's going elsewhere or, you know, very likely the case He's on a doe that's not quite receptive, and she takes him outside of his home range. Um, there's actually been one documented case of a booty call in deer where uh, <laughs> there was a doe that was uh, collared, and she left her home range, and he left his, where they were both 99, and they overlapped a little bit, and they rendezvoused, and uh, they were together for a day or so, and that was in Tennessee, and they went back to their respective home ranges. Was that so at a Motel 6? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or a college bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, there's all this interesting stuff going out there, um, and that's probably also you know when one of those guys that uh, you you know you see a social media post or somebody shoots a buck that looks a lot like the buck you've been following, and it's a couple miles away. I mean, it could very well be the same deer, and they'll travel anywhere between one to five miles. That's the average distance in these excursions. So the question. I'm, I'm sorry, in regards to the annual patterning then, um, me and Mark have been talking a lot about annual patterning, uh, patterning um, the past couple weeks and trying to you know maybe hunt where we got a trail camera picture of a deer the previous year. Are these excursions or focal points like annual, like on the second week of October you can expect the deer to do the same thing? No, uh, there's not a lot of – there's not a lot of research to say that they are uh, continuous in the same place or direction. Um, some of the research does show um, some weird stuff where they might, a lot of the, the collared deer are going in the same way. And I think some of that has to do with the terrain and the landscape in those cases. Um, 
I don't know of anything, Dan, that has said that, you know, you can count that on that deer leaving and then coming back. I wouldn't be surprised if something like that was the case. But, again, going down to the individuality of a deer, um, you know, you might have some that are, are likely to do that and other ones that are way more random. They just pick up and leave because their brain told them to. Yeah. Um, the reason I wouldn't be surprised if that happened was, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, habitual behavior with deer that's how they survive obviously they, they know how to how to do something um and it, even coming down to like when they drop their antlers you know you you've seen before in some of the research you know bucks can drop antlers within a day or two of when they did them the last year so it wouldn't shock me if somebody had a, had a uh, collar buck and they showed that these deer were doing the same thing year in and year out around the same time I just don't remember or recall any of the research showing that. And that's probably because the bucks would have to be collared for multiple years. And yeah. a lot of these collars don't have the longevity of that. I mean, they're very expensive, but they usually only last a year. Sometimes they only last a couple months, believe it or not. But um, So that hasn't been documented to my knowledge. But I, I'm I'm a huge fan of what you're asking. Yeah. That, I mean, I'm kind of in a, in a little bit different stage. I was talking to a friend the other day about the stages of hunting you know you're supposed to go through the shooter stage and then the limiting out stage and then the trophy stage and then it goes on to um i think the fourth one is the type of tactic you use and then finally sportsman stage where you're just enjoying the experience i'm somewhere in the middle of that i don't th i think there's something uh missing for uh the young father who's got a, a toddler and a preschooler and flies around the country a lot and I don't know what I'm doing this year, but I, I'm a big fan of <laughs> of patterning based on everything from finding sheds to trail camera images in the same part of the property year in, year out, um, and learning a deer. And actually, going deeper than that, finding a buck early in his life that's patter patternable, that has daylight uh, behaviors, that seems to be up and out at daytime a lot that's got above average antler growth and trying to protect that buck and see him through an older age. That, that, that's kind of the, the niche that I like is just finding a deer that's one or two or even three that's just showing extreme potential that is up and at him a lot at daytime and just trying to keep him safe to the point where you might get a shot. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating when you can learn a single deer like that over the course of several years. And then, you know, if, if you're fortunate enough to put all the pieces together by the time he is fully mature and then actually, you know, harvest that deer, that, that's about as cool as it gets. Yeah. So here, here's kind of related to this point. All the ideas here about when you're trying to pattern a deer and understand a deer. And I have two takeaways from the study that you just mentioned that tracked mature buck movement during the rut. And the two big takeaways, obviously, as mentioned, is that, yes, deer are taking these excursions, which I think is something that popular common knowledge when it comes to deer behavior during the rut has always been, you know, during the rut, bucks are going everywhere, they're going different places, that they're changing the, you know, changing the usual routine, and you can't pattern a buck. So, so part of this I'm seeing in the data here shows that, yes, there is some of that excursion behavior, but... You know, from what you said and from the stuff I've read, it sounds like that's a little bit less than maybe some have made it out to be. I think a lot of people think it's happening every single day, all the time. These bucks are nonstop moving all over to new places. But it sounds like they're actually, the majority of the time, yes, they might take a couple of these excursions, but the majority of the time they're focusing still in their home range on a couple consistent places. So my big takeaway from this, and you tell me, Matt, if this is correct for me to take this, but my big takeaway is that 
during the rut, while there is going to be some randomness, there actually is still some type of consistency that we can dial in on and potentially pattern to a degree to take advantage of during the rut and while you're hunting. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Because you're talking about the law of averages there, and although I'm telling you about every other buck will go on an excursion, and when they leave, um, they're gone for a short period of time. Uh, I mean, it's a day or two. You're talking about multiple weeks that the rut can last, two weeks even, um, in terms of all the craziness of, of all that randomness. Um, it is small percentages of when those things are occurring. It helps explain some of the head scratchers, but for the most part, if you can be in tune with your property and you can locate where deer are, they like to be during that frenzy, because um, certainly, and you can build your property that way too. You can manage it so that your property has specific locations where you know deer will hold up, um, where they like to be. You know, it's got better cover in it or things like that. That adds a lot of predictability to it. I mean, being within bow range or gun range and actually making the shot count, that comes down to skill and practice and being proficient and being able to perform under pressure. But you can absolutely change the trajectory of your success by, you know, practicing QDM and, and managing the property and letting deer go and watching all those things unfold and practicing a little patience. I mean, there's tens of thousands of QDMA members and other QDM practitioners across the country that have extremely high success rates uh, above the average hunter in all, you know, in all due respects for, all, for the millions of hunters out there. But guys that are, are like you two and uh, the listeners that are on this, that are listening to this, you can change your fate by that predictability. So I, I absolutely agree with that. So then here's the next question then, because if we're, if we're learning, trying to learn these bucks and if we know that, Hey, there is some ability to still learn and to some degree pattern and hunt these bucks during the rut, even as we understand the does do control the rut though, right? Cause everything a buck is doing during the rut during these next couple of weeks is revolved around trying to find that doe that's ready to breed. So when it comes to hunting the rut, then I think a big portion of, you know, what we're trying to do here is understanding where those does are, what they're doing, because that's where the buck wants to be. So is there anything out there that you've learned or that, you know, I, I guess, what is a doe do, doing during the rut? Because we talk a lot about what bucks are doing, but I guess the first thing we need to understand is what are the does doing? So how does doe behavior change during the rut? That's a great question. So a lot of it's similar, but there's some key differences, obviously. It's just like, you know, men are from Mars and all that. Uh, <laughs> does do not have, obviously, the influence of the immensity of what bucks do during the rut. There actually is some evidence, um, like that booty call example I gave you a few minutes ago, um, and some other research that actually show uh, does going out and seeking bucks. I mean, that, that has been documented. It's Again, it's a proportion, and it's a small proportion of the research that I've seen, but it's not like 100% of the time the, um, the buck is the pursuer. I mean, there is some of that happening. But for the most part, what those are doing is going through that same diet change, the physiological change the bucks are that we talked at the, the beginning of the show. They're getting ready for winter. Um, they're, they're bulking up. They need to be ready to survive. They need to make sure that their offspring are in the best condition because they're, they're good mothers and they're trying to get to that point. Um, they're also, at the beginning, like right now, really, I mean, they're still, the majority of does are not 
um, quite ready to breed. So that's not going on in their, you know, what they're focusing on. They're still trying to bulk up and eat and and stay safe. And probably the, the number one thing that you can do in terms of tracking does is managing your hunting pressure because they will key in on hunting pressure at a much finer level than bucks will because bucks are rut crazy, testosterone filled, and they're not paying attention to what they're doing. Every hunter knows that, and that's why guys like to hunt and gals like to hunt the rut because it's a time when you have the best chance at a buck because he's going to make a mistake. Um, He'll be out in daylight. He's going to come by you and not be looking up. All of those things are happening. Those aren't under the same influence of testosterone. I mean, clearly, it's a pretty obvious thing. So the thing you need to really be cautious of is hunting pressure um, where you don't uh, too heavily hunt the property. It's a really fine balance, but where you don't too heavily hunt the property, where you're um, alerting does to hunting pressure elevating, you know, being on the property, all of those things uh, that might make a doe change her behavior, but at the same time be able to manage all the things that we talk about in QDM, um, taking the right number of does and balancing the deer herd and the sex ratio and all those things. And there's some research out there behind it. I mean, for the most part, I mean, I can give you some real basic numbers, but a lot of the uh, concurrent research out there that, and they agree with each other, things out of Oklahoma and um, South Carolina and some other places show that it really only takes a few days of heavy pressure to, to alert a deer herd, and they start changing the way they behave. And this includes does and bucks, but they'll, they'll change when they're out during day versus night, how they get across a property. They still might do that bed-to-feed movement, but instead of going in a direct line, their path becomes much more complex. Um, their, uh, the observations of those animals go down. All of this stuff happens after about really three or plus days of pressure. So that's where kind of strategy changes how you do that. So I guess what I would recommend to somebody that wants to focus on that side of it is um, first figure out how many does you need to take because that's the lowest hole in the bucket. If you have too many deer on the property um, and not enough food or some combination of those two things, depending on, again, if you're Dan and you live in Iowa, um, (laughs) You know, if you have abundant food, you can hold a lot more deer. But if you're if you're limited by food, taking does is the thing you need to worry about beyond tracking a big deer because that buck's only going to be as big as he possibly can be if he's fed as well as he possibly can be. It's all a- antlers take a big ding from nutrition, you know. So I got um, I apologize for interrupting here, Matt, but I, I want to make sure I, I ask you this question because this is something that I've been hypothesizing about related to something you just said there. Um, and I'm really curious about your opinion on this. But before we get to that question of mine, we need to pause briefly for a word from our sponsors of this podcast episode, Ozonics. And you've heard me and Dan talk a lot about this product over the past couple of years. And that's because we found it to really help us. Way before Ozonics ever started working with us officially, we tried it out and found it to make a big difference. And we're not the only ones. So today we're going to be hearing from Dean Partridge host of Canadian Whitetail Television, about how Zonix has changed how he hunts. Here's Dean. For sure. And, and that's sometimes, I think, uh, an aspect of the, the effectiveness of Zonix that's sometimes overlooked. And I think there's two sides of that. And one is within a single deer season. For us, we spend most of our time hunting a specific buck. And when you're hunting one buck, that can happen on day one or it can happen on day 40. And every day that you hunt, 
you add pressure to that area, whether, whether you whether you like it or not, whether you realize you do it or not. And a lot of times that stand will start to go cold as you go on. So if you're hunting that buck on the edge of a field and you're sitting that stand every time your wind is right, there's no way to win 100% of the time. There's always a doe, a young buck, another deer that goes downwind 100 yards, 150 yards away that you never see. And they'll no- and you'll notice as the season goes on, your deer encounters will go down, they'll get later while you're hoping for an opportunity at that target buck. What happens is that target buck that you're after, he's a lot better at understanding his environment than we are. Otherwise, it wouldn't be so hard to hunt. So even if that target buck hasn't caught you or hasn't become aware of your presence, if other deer in that area have, he's going to realize that. So that one time that you're that you're there, that he is going to step out in that field, he's going to realize that the deer are acting differently and everything's different. And what we found is when we use those onyx on every single sit, that that downward trend of a stand starting to go cold or starting to wear that spot out, it eliminates it because any non-target deer that are downwind any issues that you have with that, they're removed. So when we go from, you know, having 25 deer in a plot on day one, we used to have by day 12 or day 15, we'd have, you know, 12 deer because some of them had caught you and caught, you know, sort of a residual damage. We eliminate that now where we're able to hunt those stands longer throughout the season and have a more normalized effect in that area where the deer aren't quite so sensitive to the other deer that have caught you that are coming later now that are more aware to your presence. So there you go. And if you are interested in learning more about Ozonics yourself, you can visit ozonicshunting.com. And now let's get back to that interesting question I had for Matt. So on my main Michigan property, I used to see a lot of mature bucks, um, but the doe population in and around this property has just gotten out of control. And I've tried to do a better job of managing what I can on my end, um, but I don't think my neighbors are killing does and I haven't killed enough. Um, so so my issue here is that I've got an astronomically high doe population and over the most more recent years, the number of mature bucks I've been seeing have been less and less and less despite the fact that I'm passing on lots and lots of young bucks. And from what I understand, most of my neighbors are too, the guys I've been able to talk to. So my hypothesis has been, I don't know if food is necessarily the limiting factor because I've got lots of food, but could there be the potential simply of the fact that there's so many does that it's overcrowding the mature bucks? Because I've heard from a lot of people that mature bucks tend to, when they're trying to find a bedding area and their core range and stuff, they prefer a little bit of isolation. They prefer to have a little space. And if there's so many doe family groups spread out in every single different pocket of cover in a, you know, two, three, 400 acre area, could that potentially be reducing how many mature bucks are, are spending time on my property? That's a good question. Now, deer aren't uh, territorial in the sense of, you know, what territorial uh, the word means, but, um, and certainly deer are segregated. You know, I mentioned that earlier. They're not like elk. Um, throughout most of the year, um, your bachelor groups and your doe family groups are going to be separate from each other. They're going to be different, using different space, um, okay. particularly when it comes to fawning season. That's probably the one time of the year that territoriality might be the closest to the truth in deer. But when it comes down to the rut, it, you know, in the fall, things are a lot more random and, and use is, is scattered. But it can lay the groundwork for where deer set up their home ranges, you know, at the very beginning. So if you have a property that has above high 
you know, above what the land can support, the the carrying capacity is is uh, tainted, and you don't you have too many deer, and you have a lot of does. Um, it could potentially impact what bucks are there during the majority of the year. Now, on the flip side, you might be able to pull in a random buck or two later in the year through an excursion because you have so many does. But then again, you're you're playing with the law of averages there again, right? So you're you're hoping that a buck that you're not seeing throughout 360 days a year shows up for a random event as opposed to the bucks that are calling the place home, working with them and managing around them because uh, and, and giving them that space. Um, so that certainly can be an impact, yes. I mean, I, if that helps answer that question. So yeah. one of the things that I always recommend is the first thing you need to look at is, you know, where's your deer herd at? Here's an example. So the property I hunt on, I hunt on a QEM cooperative. Uh, it's a, several farms that are uh, next to each other. Um, they're all contiguous, so there's no open space between it. But it's not a giant, giant chunk of land, but it's, it's good. Um, we really focused on reducing deer density. This is our sixth season going in. Um, and it took us about three or four seasons to get there. And the deer visibility has gone down. I mean, I'll tell you, it was, and I'm tracking it through through hunter observations. Um, we're seeing, whereas the beginning, uh, about two deer an hour, um, under a deer an hour now, it's, I think, 0.8 last season. So as a hunter, it feels very different. I go out there, I don't see as many deer as I used to, but that's the point. I mean, that we needed to reduce it. Um, the number of bucks I'm seeing out of that, the, you know, the observations it's higher than it used to be. We're, we're seeing a lot more does and we're bucks. Um, are there more older bucks? Um, last year, I would absolutely said, yes, this is a strange year, and, and there's some good bucks on there, but nothing like there was last year, and I'm not sure why the case, but that's going to come and go. So my, I feel very confident in the decision of managing the does to begin with, um, and the images we get on trail cameras and certainly the bucks we're seeing and killing the last two or three years is way, way better than the first two or three years. Um, and you're not going to have that every year. So you might be in a, in a point, Mark, where that could be impacting you. You could just have a year um, where, uh, you know, a, a bigger buck or two uh, disappeared from the landscape, um, you know, and, and the deer that are there just not of the age yet. Um, you know, bucks aren't necessarily bullies. They're not going to push buck, other bucks out and make another older buck, big buck, not show up. That's not necessarily true. Um, but you got to kind of handle what's there. So the bucks that are living on the property, identify their age, figure out which one's got the potential to be big, I guess, and uh, see him through. So this brings me to kind of a related question that ties into this. Um, you know, we've talked about some of these impacts that might occur if I were to, you know, better manage some aspects of this property, which is my goal. And there's, there's one thing on my mind that I, that I think is an impact, but I want to hear from you first, Matt, when you actually start implementing quality deer management practices. So, you know, managing and harvesting deer to have the appropriate level of does, the appropriate level of bucks, uh, appropriate age structure, all these things, not, not the management that some people talk about on TV, just trying to shoot giant racked bucks, but I mean, real quality deer management, trying to, you know, be smart about your harvest to to achieve that proper balance in your herd. When you have a herd like that, how is the rut different in a managed herd like that, and how so? It is different. Uh, once the and this is one of the things we tell 
any introductory member, it's one of the things that we explain about QDM, is once you balance that uh, ratio of bucks to does, um, a lot of the signpost behavior that you see on a property will increase by a lot, meaning rubs and scrapes and that type of stuff. It's stuff you get excited to see when you go in the woods uh, because if you think about it, they're competing for a limited resource when you're, when you're balancing your does. If you have too many does, that's a, again, talking like we spoke earlier in the show, um, they're in abundance, right? So bucks don't need, need to necessarily compete for it. And through competition, like leaving sign, rubs and scrapes, or even fighting, um, or in that respect, responding to aggressive tactics like using decoys and rattling and grunting and getting you know really aggressive with how you're trying to get deer in front of you, all of that changes when you balance what's out there because instead of having a surplus of female deer on the property, um, there's more balance to it, meaning the bucks have to compete for it and your hunting success and really the fun in hunting improves. So that does change on a property, especially at a landscape level, if you're working with neighbors and everybody's contributing. So in your situation, Mark, if you have neighbors that are at least in uh, contact with you, even if it's not a formal co-op, um, if you guys are uh, talking and talking about letting deer go and um, taking the right number of deer, you will definitely improve your hunting uh, by by making some of those decisions. Now, there's textbook and then there's the reality of working with people, and it can be hard. And that's where you talk about expectations of not letting yourself down if you expect to change things and it to turn into a TV show. I mean, that, that can happen. I mean, just as an example, a hunter on the property that I hunt on killed the fifth biggest buck in our county last year on a co-op that happened because of the co-op um you know there's no doubt in my mind that's what happened but um, for the most part that's not every buck out there i mean we have very average antler scores and ages i mean we have deer that are three and four years old that are you know 120s 130s it's not like every buck's a giant so that's where you kind of set your expectations and even set your goals if you're happy going for maturity which makes me very happy you know looking for a deer that's mature depending on what's on his head that changes all the same thing with with does so um, practicing qdm will make you a better hunter it makes your hunting more fun it makes your rut more intense Uh, all of that is absolutely true something you talked about there um is another thing i'm curious about hearing from you and you mentioned the fact that signposting might increase um in a property that's properly managed kind of outside of just the QDMM piece, but just in general, can you dive into the science of signposting? So rubs and scrapes are something that, you know, we hunters associate with the rut, but can you go into both of those and, you know, why are bucks making those? What are they doing with them? And when are they doing them? I guess is what I'm first curious about from you. Okay. Yeah. There's actually very predictable times when both of those behaviors peak in the woods. Um, Scraping, Let's talk about that one first. Bucks will start making scrapes really uh, after velvet peel. They'll start doing a little bit. But by far, it ramps up going through um, early fall. You know, it's just called the the second week in November. Um, You'll see scraping activity peak about a week and a half to 14 days uh, prior to that. That's when it peaks. And it will maintain 
uh, that peak up until when breeding starts occurring. So right now, late October um, is the time when you see scra- more scrapes than any other time of the year. Um, it'll continue for a couple of weeks, and actually in the probably second week in November, uh, when most breeding is occurring, it starts to drop off. There's usually a little bit of peak after that when you see a second rut occurring or things like that, but w- there should be the most scrapes on your properties right now. Um, rubbing actually increases and peaks with the peak of breeding. So that usually will peak a little bit later in the fall, about when bucks are, uh, and does are actually starting to breed. And why? what's the science say about why they're doing those two things? Well, the science behind it is what they're doing is they're leaving sign for other deer. I mean, deer are very social animals. Um, they speak to each other through vocalizations. That's why we buy grunt calls and doe bleats and cans and all those things because we know that you know deer are very vocal with each other. Um, they have uh, a lot of scent production. Uh, they will leave scent through seven different glands on their body uh, with bucks at seven, those six. Um, they leave scent on scrapes. They leave uh, by urinating and or, and or rub urinating in that spot. They will leave scent on a rub uh, by, once they make the rub, their forehead gland, that's that dark spot between the antlers. All that hair gets really dark because there's a very oily uh, substance, basically like um, you know, if you don't shower for a couple of days, your hair gets really greasy. Every single hair follicle on our body has a sebaceous gland. It produces a little bit of an oil to it. Uh, deer mammals, they have the same thing, but these areas of high glandular activity like the forehead um, or the tarsal gland, um, you know, these areas will actually produce a, an abundance of those oils, and they're depositing scent through that. So what they're doing is they're basically leaving their calling card. So any deer, fawn, doe, buck, can go to those places, those signpost locations, and smell it and pick up the pheromones of other individuals. And it's basically like going to the deli and leaving your business card to you know, win a free sandwich or a free hoagie. <laughs> they're leaving their, their business card there saying, I was here. Um, again, it kind of blends into that territoriality of deer territorial. They're not. They're just they're just leaving their sign out there, and it also alerts, and also cues a little bit to the rut. You know, when those are priming and getting ready to come into estrus, there's some suggestions out there um, through well-known researchers. I haven't seen research that says it uh, it's unfounded, but there's a lot of good research out there that talks about the number of chemical receptors and pheromones in bucks. Um, and immature bucks versus mature bucks, that, it, that that's irresputable that um, mature bucks do leave different scents, different types of scents, different types of compounds than young bucks do. You know, so the theory there, and that's a theory, is that they're leaving their sign, their, their scent for others to smell as a marking of we're here or I'm ready. And uh, there's also some suggested evidence that those can be cued quicker into breeding or being ready to breed with some of that out there with more mature bucks and those those right compounds so um, it's very interconnected there's a lot we don't know about deer um, but there's a lot of very interesting things going on and they certainly are are uh, tied together to each other through communication like that so is there any 
takeaway for hunters in regards to signposts because there's lots of different ideas and theories and it's it's changed over the years about hunting over or near rubs or scrapes but is there any definitive takeaway that we that we have now in regards to if it's worth hunting over those two different types of sign well scrapes the research shows and i I didn't actually say this a minute ago but scrapes have been shown the majority of them do happen at night um and rubs I don't actually remember what the research says when those occur, but I do know that that'll increase, you know, the more you have a well-balanced deer herd. Um, but just like any hunter that that's listening, you know, I go into a woodlot and I see a bunch of rubs and scrapes. I get excited. It, it looks like there's a buck using that property. Um, that's part of the property. Now, you can set up over that scrape and hope that you see that deer, but know that he's probably checking those at night. It's about 85% of the research says that scrapes are made and checked at night. You could be a 15%er. I have great daytime pictures of bucks using scrapes, you know, and I could have been sitting there in that stand during that time. Again, if you want to play the law of averages and listen to the research, you can say, well, I'll, okay, there's a scrape line going through this part of the property, and there's really no true scrape line a lot of the research has shown and disputed you might find a several scrapes on a ridge Um, you could have a completely different set of bucks using it's not made by one deer walking in a line this is just a concentration of activity where bucks are leaving their sign and it's probably because there's does near there so they're leaving their sign for does Um, you know, so I can go in there with my climber and say, wow, there's a bunch of scrapes right here. I'm going to set up right here and have the expectation of seeing a buck. I know as a researcher, you know, and a deer biologist that, you know what, these are probably being made at night. Um, 80 to 85% of these are being made at night, and there's probably a chance I'm not going to see the buck. But I might still set up there saying, you know what, it could be one of those 15% times that a buck's coming through. And I've, gotten, I've seen a lot of different, you know, Uh, responses on our website and social media posts and other things when this research gets put out there in articles or posts or things like that somebody will put a picture of a buck making a scrape well of course yes that does i mean you can't say absolute anything and that's one of the things i mentioned about science is what peer-reviewed research gives us is a is a moment in time um the researchers collared bucks or they did this or did that on a property in you know, Iowa to Maryland to Texas to New York. And you can say, well, that's the case in New York. The, the true test of science is repeatability, being able to try it again. And some of this research has been repeated in different parts of the country, and they've done the same uh, test, and they've shown the same results. The, that's the real true part of science, is learning what the majority of the time things happen. But as a hunter, you need to take that and synthesize it and say, how do I apply that to my situation? Shoot, Mark and Dan, I'm still going to go out and set up a stand and be near scrapes because that means <laughs> there's bucks in the area. Yeah. I'm not going to think as a, you know, as a hunter, that's what I'm going to do. I know my expectations might be uh, that buck might not be here during daylight, um, but I also know that there's a lot of activity in that area, so it might be a shot. So you have to just kind of balance all that. Yeah, so true. It's the... It's six one way, half dozen the other, but finding, you know, taking what you can learn from that and then, you know, say, okay, well, exactly like what you said. The way I think about it is, okay, I understand that, you know, 80% of this might be happening during dark, but at the same time, if you look at that point where there's a scrape 
where I could say, okay, I know that there's a 20% chance he's touching, that he's coming to this place potentially. Or I could go to some other random place 100 yards away where there's no scrapes at all. And, you know, okay, do I have a 20% chance of a buck coming here? Maybe it's even less there because there's, you know, no particular reason. So it's one more little piece of the puzzle you can put potentially in your favor if you apply it. Um, but yep. maybe maybe it's not something to rest your entire strategy on. So, yeah. uh, Dan, are you are you okay over there? Are you live? Where I'm you, sucking it in. What are your I'm, thoughts? I'm, spong- I'm sponging it up. I want to know one thing. Based off just of once. yeah, just well, <laughs> I mean, there's literally another episode worth of questions that we could ask you, yeah, and, and go detailed to you know to all get out. But you know, a lot of people use, I guess, hunting information that's not scientific to learn how to hunt. Um, like, oh man, when uh, when the rooster crows, you better be in the timber or. You know, when the cows are standing with their wind, their back to the east, you better be in the timber. You know, those kind of things or even myths that are um, even things that are on like the outdoor channel or on the, you know, these celebrities are telling you how to do these things. Are there any myths that science has disproven that's basically just like, hey, that's that's you. You're wrong. That's a great question. There's probably a pile of them. Uh, you know, one of the things, and again, getting back to the, you know, what peer-reviewed research mm-hmm. says, um, the biggest is probably the moon phase. I mean, that that is the one smack dab in the, you know, elephant in the room when it comes to the rut. Um, as far as I know, you know, I've looked at a lot of different projects um, where they've looked at moon phase in comparison to buck activity. Again, you don't necessarily know when deer are breeding when they have a collar on, but you can just see when they're on their feet. And uh, that hasn't shown any evidence of, you know, being correlated when moon phase changes um, that it's going to impact the deer's behavior. It, It has to do with everything else. I do think the one thing that along those lines is the weather I mentioned earlier, you know, something tells me that weather must impact when deer are moving, but that also has been shown to not be correlated, which that's a head scratcher for me. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if either of those cases, some some researcher finds evidence that, you know, moon phase in, in a certain situation, you know, I'm talking about five, six different projects that have looked at that. And in some cases, you know, half a million data points off of hundreds of bucks that are collared haven't found it, you got to feel like, okay, well, you know, there's got to be some truth to that. I wouldn't be some surprised if somebody found one project that said, yeah, it does. On the flip side, uh, so somebody could do the same with weather, and me as a hunter wants to say, I knew it, but I also know there's half a dozen projects out there that have tied all those data points to weather events, you know, barometric pressure and cold fronts and rain and all those things and haven't found anything. So, you know, I, I gotta be a hunter in some cases, and I gotta be a researcher in others. So, as someone like myself who likes to follow the science, I'm gonna say something. I'm gonna say this out loud, just so people hear it. Based, <laughs> yeah, based on the research that has been done, moon the moon phase does not influence deer movement. Has been shown not to influence deer movement. Is that an accurate Correct. statement? Okay. It is very accurate. Yep. Based on research, weather patterns 
do uh, have been shown to not change deer movement or like influence deer movement. That's another accurate statement, correct? That is also another accurate statement. So everything that we have as hunters have, you know, thought over the years, science is showing that, yeah, guess what? It's really not. So, so then that just brings up these questions again. What is influencing deer movement? Here, here's something I'd like to add onto that, Dan, um, because I, I, I like mash my brain together trying to figure this out yeah. too. Because just like what you said, Matt, you said the research, this data, these certain research scenarios have said this. But as a hunter, so many of us have anecdotally seen evidence that maybe there's something different. I, I, I wonder as I try to think through this, could we be comparing apples to oranges here in that the study is looking at a certain criteria or saying, you know, you know, deer movement or deer activity as they are measuring it might be very different from quote unquote deer movement or deer activity that we hunters are looking for. So hypothetically, could this be a scenario where the researcher is studying actual, you know, um, number of feet traveled throughout a 24 hour period, something like that, you know, the actual movement of this deer in 24 hours. And they're saying regardless of temperature or moon phase, the amount of actual distance traveled is not any different. While from a hunter standpoint, I might be curious in how much movement in the open is happening during daylight, that kind of thing. You know, that's the activity that I'm interested in. So could a cold front increase the amount of movement out of their bedding area during daylight? Is that, you know, maybe that's what I'm interested in from a hunter standpoint. And maybe the cold front does trigger increased activity there, but it doesn't necessarily change the absolute distance of total travel in 24 hours. That's my hypothesis is there might be some difference in the actual measurement criteria. Matt, is there any possible, is that make any sense at all? It does. And not every one of those projects has looked in that, but some of them have. They've looked at vulnerability to harvest from daylight to night uh, versus and also things like distance from tree stands, having like tree stands GPS on some of these properties and looking at how vulnerable they were within a hundred meter or hundred yard distance if it was gun season or, you know, 30 yard distance from those stands uh, during bow. And again, none of that stuff has shown any correlation. That is Um, amazing. Yeah. A lot of stuff with the moon phase uh, that was initially done looked at conceptions, and that was all based on fetal measurements. They looked at when the bulk of the deer does were being bred and correlated that to moon. No no correlation. But a lot of this GPS research is also looking at breeding dates, but they're also looking at um, movements over a 24-hour period, and some of them to the degree that uh, Mark is saying, you know, daytime versus night and, and other things. So, and again... You know, I said this before, uh, it comes down to the property. I mean, it really does. I mean, you can talk about this big umbrella of what research is saying. If you want to believe, I mean, I, I will, I'm glad Dan said that. That is the take-home message. There's no research to support any of that, those theories. It doesn't, it doesn't come out. However, you know, when it comes down to it, don't, don't throw that away. Don't throw it in the trash paper basket when you get off listening to this and say, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about, or, well, I know because I saw this. That's not good enough because you're not talking about 
hundreds of deer with collars or you know thousands or ten thousands of data points that are collared. That's very different. But I would still suggest to the hunter that wants to micromanage a property and understand this research might say all this. It might show that these things aren't correlated. Um, but I can tell you, you might be. The day that you go out there and say, you know what, the moon phase is telling me this, or there's a cold front, and again, I'm telling you as a hunter, I feel like weather must do more than what the researchers said, but it hasn't shown up. Um, there just has to be something related to it. But again, I'm a deer hunter too. Um, you could be in a stand and have a buck make a decision that changes his fate and you kill him, and you might tie that to one of those multiple things we're talking about, um, but that's still anecdotal, but who cares? You still killed that deer. He changed his behavior. Um, or even at a property level, you might be on a property where things are in a frenzy. It has nothing to do with moon or weather. It's just because deer are so social, you know, something impacted them. You know, a couple does that went into estrus early or a buck just that felt so, you know, randy, he was getting does up and moving them around, and that just triggered other deer to get up and move. I mean, I know you guys have seen this where you're in a, in a stand and you see deer almost playing, and other deer react to it by playing, or deer running away from fear from a coyote or a hunter or a buck chasing, and other do, deer do that. I mean, there's no way to measure that randomness. All you can do as a hunter is know when your best chance of shooting a buck is or your best chance of getting that deer within range and spend as much time as you possibly can in the stand because it's going to increase that percentage of, yes, you're going to get a shot. And I talked about earlier, your proficiency and your ability to pick a good stand location is going to be a big part of that success. So your skill level as a hunter certainly will play a part of it. And luck, of course, obviously comes into it too. But if I was a betting man, I would, you know, we know that deer are most active at dawn and dusk or around those hours. Deer are killed all the time in the middle of the day. Um, but, you know, the bulk of the research says they're most active at dawn and dusk. Uh, they're going to be most vulnerable during the rut, you know, those first couple of weeks in November. They're going to be most vulnerable. Uh, what I feel like is when a weather event is happening, although the research doesn't say that, I'm going to spend time in a stand when that stuff is happening, and just the fact that I'm spending time out there is going to increase my chances. You know, I might believe a magic rock will increase my chances, and I might keep it in my pocket, and I might kill a buck, and I'm going to say, you know what, that rock made that, that happen. That doesn't necessarily, it's not a cause and effect thing, but it doesn't matter because you know through science when it's telling you to spend the most time and just be out there, be present, and be one, you know, mentally recording all of this stuff or just physically recording it like through that deer tracker app I mentioned earlier to, you know, allow for a better uh, documentation of what's happening on the property and across the country, um, as well as just being there to be able to make some of those choices and uh, react to them. If you see there's a lot of activity in one corner of the property, be adaptable, move your stand that day, get down, move it. And, uh, you might be more successful because of it. Yeah, I. Uh, this is one of those topics that is. <laughs> it's There's fascinating. No bullet. Yeah, it's just it for me. It's one of those things where it's like, man, 
you, you talk to so many people and they and, and they say, man, I'm telling you what, you get in the stand when the moon is right here or when there's high pressure or when there's a cold front coming through and you're going to kill a buck. And then here's a research, actual factual research that shows that they're not 100% correct. But then to Matt's point too. Nothing is nothing is solid. Nothing is solid. And to to his point about to your point, Matt, about weather. I mean, you talk to any serious deer hunter and they're going to say, yes, we are seeing different deer behavior when a weather front comes through. But the research doesn't support it. So that I mean, that that raises similar questions about some other things, too. There might be, you know, I'm not I find this very interesting. I take it into account. I put it in the tool chest, but I'm not necessarily throwing out some of these other theories, too, that are intriguing because I, you know, because I think here's one interesting thing that kind of my final thought on this is that you take a guy hypothetically, let's say one of these one of these hunters that really strongly believes in the position of the moon and that influencing, you know, a little bit of increased deer activity, and that's something that both you and me, Dan, we've been listening to a lot of guys talk about, and it's really interesting and intriguing, and I've been trying to pay more attention to it too. But let's take a guy who's a diehard believer in it. When that person, let's we'll hypothetically call him Ben, when Ben goes into the woods with this very strong belief in this theory that when the moon's overhead or whatever, that he's going to have a great chance. When you go into a tree stand with a piece of data like that or a belief like that, and you believe in it so strongly, I believe your confidence level can be an influencer of the success you have. Merely because when you are very confident in your stand site and in the conditions on that day and on why you're hunting there, when your confidence is that high, I believe that you operate at a different level of efficiency and effectiveness as a hunter. So when you're super confident, you're paying attention to everything around you. You notice every flicker of movement. You're super quiet. You're super detailed. You're crossing all your T's and dotting all of your I's. And I think maybe there's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy happening here, where when you have such a strong belief in something happening, you just hunt better. And because of that, you have more success. And I'm curious if maybe there's something to that. I'll comment on that. I think there is, and I think not only that, Mark, is that um, not only they might be more confident and more efficient, um, but that type of hunter, that type of deer hunter that cares to look deeper and ask questions and try to improve their own ability is the type of hunter that's going to improve anyway. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Instead of just haphazardly going in the woods or hunting uh, as a, as a means of tradition, you know, going to the stand that grandpappy talked me to, to, you know, opening day. And that's the only day that he goes out or she goes out. The person that's saying, how can I be better? Um, some of that is going to be self-fulfilling. It has to be because they're trying to up their bet. I also think that there's probably as many, if not more people out there that are the hardcore, you know, in this example, moon theory believers that are not killing a buck that day and the moon is the cause of it you know something happened that was wrong and again when it comes down to science is really hard to argue with um, and there's always going to be a you know well that didn't work for me because that project was from texas or you know i live in new york and that research was from florida yeah of course i mean there's no way you can test it all but if you can repeat results, you get a better sense of what's going on. But we're never going to have all the answers, um, and that's the case. So, yeah, I do think, yeah, there's some truth to that. Um, but I think it's also the type of hunter 
that you're talking about. You're categorizing out of the 11 to 13 million deer hunters out there. I guarantee you not all of them are paying attention to moon phase. Um, <laughs> the ones that are, are trying to make their situation better. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think any way you look at it, this is some pretty interesting stuff. And, um, we are conversations not over. Yeah. The conver- I wish the conversation wasn't over, but we do have to end this conversation because we are over time and we've kept you way too long, Matt. So I apologize for that, but thank you for taking the time to, to talk through all this stuff. Cause it's awesome. Um, if, our listeners want to learn more about quality deer management and the quality deer management association where you work, where can they go to get some information about this kind of stuff? All right. The easiest thing is to find us online, uh, qdma.com. Um, you can follow us through social media too. We have very active Facebook and Twitter platforms. Um, a membership is fairly inexpensive. It's on par with the other conservation groups. Um, and I would, encourage and challenge all listeners if you're a deer hunter um join one uh reason you'll you'll improve your deer hunting knowledge you'll make yourself a better deer hunter and be able to make better decisions because of it it'll make your deer hunting more fun and beyond all that you know there's a lot of stuff happening in the deer world that um, could be better and as a conservation organization we fight for every single one of those 11 plus deer million uh, hunter rights on a daily basis. That's what we go to, to work every day for. And, uh, I challenge you to support an organization that's fighting for your right for deer hunting. So, um, qdma.com and, and it's a, it's a great, uh, organization. I hope you decide to join. Yeah. I'll second everything you said there, Matt, and I'll, and I'll add one other challenge. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the quality deer management association and about quality deer management because that term qdm has kind of been stolen by a lot of people and applied to things that don't really fall in line with what you guys actually are fundamentally focused on um so i would challenge anyone who's you know been anti-qdm or qdma or just not cared about it because of different you know assumptions you have just go to the website and read the about page and the mission and the philosophy and I think people have a hard time reading those things that you as the organization and the people working there are actually fighting for. That is really hard to argue with. I mean, there's some incredible things you guys are working on and promoting. Um, and in a lot of cases, it's, it's very different from what Joe Blow on TV is talking about. So I would say learn a little bit about it from the source before you make a decision. And I think if you do, you'll likely make a decision similar to what I have, and that is to become a member and take advantage of those resources that you said, Matt, your great magazine, your website, and the many other things you guys are doing. Um, it's been a, it's been a great thing to be a part of. So Matt, thank you so much for joining us here today. This has been really interesting and we appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for having me. And I'll tell you on a personal note, I really enjoy what you guys are doing. I, I listen to podcasts and, uh, um, keep doing what you're doing. I think you guys are, are doing a phenomenal job and changing things for deer hunters out there. Hey, well, thank you, man. I appreciate that. And, uh, hey, good luck on these upcoming hunts. Thanks, you guys, too. Have a good Take one. Care. All right, so there you have it, another podcast in the books. And before we go, though, a couple quick announcements. First off, we've got some new Wired Hunt gear available just in time for the rut. We've got a couple different styles of trucker hats, a flat bill, and some lightweight hoodies. So check out wiredtohunt.com slash shop to grab some of that stuff. And please do. Your purchases go directly to keep this podcast and the Wired Hunt blog going. So thank you so much for that in advance. 
Also, be sure to check out the Whitetail Q&A podcast, which is my shorter Q&A format show, as we've got some great rut-related episodes this week, too, and next. And also, my co-host Dan has launched a brand new podcast of his own, so be sure to look up the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Finally, we do need to give a big thank you to our partners who help make this podcast possible. So big thank you to Sick Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. So, with all that said, the rut is about to pop. So get in a tree, good luck, and until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full, great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. 